Hello and welcome to a most excellent diminishing returns this week as uh, I, a really good approximation of uh, Keanu Reeves, but you can't see that, <laughs> like I'm not, not vocally, uh, I, Sol Harris, am joined by Mr. Alan Turing, Esquire, and uh, his most bodacious uh, brother, Gareth. Station! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about the Bill and Ted uh, duology is there a, is there a less terrible word I can use for a pair films? of tape pair yeah, pair of films <laughs> yeah couple the Bill and Ted coupling of uh, excellent adventure and bogus journey this week because allegedly Bill and Ted <laughs> face the music the third entry in the franchise is coming out soon but uh, that's still up in the air somewhat. We're, we live in uncertain times, so <laughs> yeah. when it comes to film release dates, we just have to roll with it. I mean, we, we in case this affects the content at all, I'm just going to say up front, we set this record date based on an earlier release date the film had, and it has since already been delayed again, but we decided to just record now and let the episode sit on a shelf for a couple of weeks, so we've got it in the can. So, yeah, we are doing the Bill and Ted film. So, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, followed by Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Um, classics. Classic. Modern classics. Um, really? <laughs> I, I probably would have agreed with you a week ago. <laughs> Before you watched them again. <laughs> I must admit, I, I think of these films being a big part of pop culture and quite mainstream. But then mm-hmm. when I was looking them up... Uh, as part of my rewatch, they they're constantly referred to as cult films, which I found quite odd because I my knowledge of these films. I mean, not to get too well. I I guess let's just jump straight into it. You know, I I remember being very young and my mum kind of going on about. I think it was a Bill and Ted cartoon that I'd stumbled on, and yeah. my mum being like, "Oh wow, it's Bill and Ted, huh?" That sounds like it's actually them, and and me as a child not understanding what Bill and Ted were at all, and then just being hit over the head with Bill and Ted's bogus journey repeatedly on. I'm gonna guess ITV two um, at a certain age, uh, growing up. Well, again, you've you immediately made me feel old there, Sol. My, I'll tell you my Bill and Ted. I went to see Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure at the cinema with my friend Damo in Doncaster. I I, I have not I, been I born know- yet. I don't know why I remember this so distinctly. It must have been a really big decision, but we we really couldn't make our minds up whether we went to see this film or Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We opted for Bill and Ted. And do you know what? I've still never seen Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> oh, my God. You know what, Alan? I mean, I keep forgetting about it, but we've really got to do Weekend at Bernie's on this podcast. <laughs> and I say that more than anything because we've really got to do Weekend at Bernie's 2, uh, which which involves actual, like, voodoo zombies and <laughs> a, a treasure hunt. And it is just... It is one of the strangest films I've ever seen. But yeah, Weekend at Bernie's is a, a kind of... It's not even so bad it's good. It's just so so stupid and naff that it's kind of funny in an <laughs> ironic it, it's the ultimate hipster film <laughs> well Saul, so i would be up for that as i say i've never seen it but bill and ted right so i went to see this in the cinema in what was it 1989 yeah i honestly think i haven't seen it again until this week <laughs> i've seen like you i've seen bill and ted's bogus journey countless times mm. but watching excellent adventure again this week it was almost like I'd never seen it before. It was mm-hmm. a really, really quiet memory. And 
it's been, it's been very difficult to find online and to find copies of it. And I, I'm, I, I'm assuming, therefore, that it's never been on the telly. It's just, it's just been on the shelf somewhere. I don't know if there's like a right reason for that. Yeah, I mean, can we, let's get into how Bill and Ted came about a little bit. The two writers, uh, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon. Uh, Sol, do you know who Chris Matheson is? Of course I do. <laughs> I know. He's the writer of a Goofy movie. Yes. <laughs> he, he's also, I mean, what you're getting at is he is the son of acclaimed uh, sci-fi horror author, of whom I'm a, a, a massive fan, Richard Matheson. I am legend. Richard Matheson, I am legend. That's right, yeah. Yes. I did notice, however, so I did notice that Goofy movie credit on his uh, thing there. I did, uh, I clocked that for you. <laughs> I'm, I'm. You know, I'm a big fan of Chris Matheson. He's he's done some decent work. Well, what I read was that Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, they did these characters as kind of like a stand-up act. You know, the two of them would go up on stage. And oh, kind of, really? Right. And like discuss current events, but with like as idiots, they don't know what they're talking about. And it was a little comedy bit they did. That explains a lot and, about this film. And off the back of that, they went, oh, let's write a film around these guys. Uh, so obviously... The uh, the whole time travel element of it was an add-on to that. I don't think that was ever part of their kind of character creation in the first place. Well, it, it makes sense that, you know, regarding the sequels, uh, I mean, I suppose this is something we'll talk about more later, but they, they kind of do time travel in the first film and then that's it. Yeah. It doesn't really play a huge role in the subsequent films, although it is present there. If you actually think about the plot, it's very odd. They... You know they have it's bizarre, yeah. they, these two basically slacker teen characters, yeah. But then it's in the future their music kind of br- brings tranquility to the entire universe and peace. And he never really—they're <laughs> like these modern-day Confucius, <laughs> yeah, where, where the whole society, you know, rests on their their thoughts. But he never even kind of explains that. It's just like, oh, someone from the future comes down. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I was really surprised when I sat down to rewatch this the other day. I remember there being a lot more exposition. I remember George Carlin kind of saying, look, this is what the deal is, guys. You have to do this, otherwise the future will go dystopian rather than utopian mm-hmm. or whatever. And they never really establish those stakes. They're, they're all kind of implicit or read about on Wikipedia to remind myself what this film is about. I don't know. I might be giving him a bit too much credit here, but perhaps that's that's a really nice bit of subtle writing. That's oh, <laughs> too much credit. No, but the point is, you're right. They never explicitly say it, and yet it is understood. So, uh, yeah, they mm. get the point across quite well. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. It's just a very odd way of doing things. It's, yeah. it's, it's a weird script in that the, what actually happens is really quite simple. You know, there's not a lot of plot going on. <laughs> they kind of go back in time pick up some old dudes, bring them back to present a history project. And that's it. But then, you know, you're dealing with time travel, you're dealing with a utopian, uh, you know, future. And it's, it feels, it definitely feels like there's kind of the makings of a really great film here that it never quite gets there. Yes. <laughs> it, yeah. And, I, and even with the second film, we'll get onto it, but, you know, a similar kind of feeling. It just... There's a lot of mm. ideas going on here, and I just need to kind of coalesce them a little bit more. They're not that funny. It's kind of a really lightweight, almost like family film feel. 
And I, it feels like know, a, I, an extended sketch. It feels like two. Do you know what it feels like? It feels like Wayne's World. I know Wayne's World came later, <laughs> but Wayne's World was a, a Saturday Night Live sketch that they made into a film, which, you know, was maybe a bit of a stretch. Mm. <laughs> uh, obviously, Bill and Ted didn't start as a sketch, but that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like they've they've taken a 10-minute premise and made the film out of it. Well, like I say, if it came from this sort of stand-up routine they did, I mean, that's essentially, it is. A sl- the they just go up yeah. and do a sketch, and you know, and they'd flesh it out. I tell you, the, the other thing I kept thinking about was uh, Beavis and Butthead. Uh, did that come, I know, did yeah. that come before or after um, after this film? Because obviously they were uh, on MTV after, in Little After, Wood. actually. But Beavis yeah. and Butthead weren't even, it wasn't even a sketch show. They were 20-second interstitials between music videos, weren't they? You know, that was even... Even more of a stretch to pull out to the movie. Beavis and Butthead is very much the same sort of thing, though, in that the joke here is that, and I suppose Dumb and Dumber as well, the joke here is that these two are so profoundly stupid (laughs) that they will, you know, like, go in circles with stuff and forget what, like, it's, 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 it it's like Connor, a uh, friend of the show Connor, trying to explain Dumb and Dumber to Calvin. I remember this back at uni. Calvin wasn't that keen on watching Dumb and Dumber. He'd never seen it. He thought it was just going to be these two idiots, real like you know lowbrow slapstick comedy, which arguably it is. But I remember Connor saying to him, Calvin, they they're so stupid it transcends stupidity. It, it like rise. It like comes round the other side, and <laughs> and I think it's that same thing there was obviously a wave in the late 80s early yeah. 90s of just people you know we'd had laurel and hardy and we'd we'd had the the kind of clown uh characters and double acts these buffoon characters and it almost feels like it was reaching its apex of just let's just push this to the absolute farthest extreme but i do they are obviously unremittingly stupid but i do enjoy their egregious vocabulary <laughs> yeah yeah they, yeah they, they, I, I like the way they talk you know the the, the language that, that is it, it's, it, it sets it apart from just being a kind of like california surfer dude kind of they're not just grunting monosyllabically what one thing i, I did read about the the original script was that they had been they were envisioned as 14 year olds who were just kind of a bit bit losers kind of a bit geeky and and they just wore heavy metal t-shirts and stuff like which He's even more Beavis and Butthead, yeah. Um, but then when they cast it, obviously they go for older actors just for whatever. It makes it easier to film. But, you know, you got Keanu Reeves uh, particularly, but Alex Winter as well, I suppose. They were a bit too handsome and sort of sexy and cool <laughs> so, mm. to, to play the quite to be quite the same as they envisioned them. So it went into this more kind of surfer dude kind of, yeah, slacker thing. But I think there's there's a couple of things that really make it make them stand out and they're slightly different from other things that are going on. One is that they never mention drugs, they're never smoking weed or anything like that. Um, and it's not even, it doesn't even feel like it's particularly implied. Um, and the other thing I think that really sets it apart, and I think this is to do with perhaps a long-term why people like it, is there, it's just kind of unrelentingly positive and optimistic that is so yeah. true. Te- Keanu Reeves, in particular, is so lovely. He he is always complimenting people. He's yeah. always saying that was a most excellent round of charades. Yes, he's just, he's just a really nice bloke. There's not a nasty bone in their body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, that's that's written into the plot, though. You know that it, it, it's it's an important part of the character's 
Well, this is why the world. This is why the world has based its uh, philosophy upon their thoughts. Yeah, but exactly. They, they but, I, but I think likeable. that is, you know, yeah. I think they have to be relentlessly positive characters to for us to buy that their music will ultimately bring the world together in a mm-hmm. utopia. And I, I think that's a really nice, you know, it, it hammers home that oh, they are just lovely, incorruptible like people. But I do think that is something that makes the film as a whole more likable and just kind of you come away from it going, ah, that's nice. There's, yeah. a, there's a really sharp contrast there with Beavis and Butthead because Beavis and Butthead are horrible. Oh, yeah. You know, they're really, <laughs> I mean, they're stupid, but they're, they're really horrible. You wouldn't, you don't have any sympathy with them. Um, what, what I was going to say before is just that I, I find it weird when I go back to these films. And I think maybe it's just the, the era in which they were made, but... Like they are comedies, and they're kind of they're they're kind of funny in a vaguely amusing way, like but they're not like big laugh out loud gags, and yeah. I don't know if that's just I just but I, I you you would never get a comedy with this tone made mm. and released in this day and age under normal circumstances, which I suppose is is going to lead on to a bit of discussion about the third film later on, mm. but. It, it, there's something about the tone they strike here that's such a kind of light comedy, mm. yeah. Rather that's true. than it's not it's not gags, is it? It's I, I, yeah, I must, yeah. It's it's getting by on charm and likability yeah. more and warmth more than out and out hilarity. But when I, yeah, you're right. When I I watched this f- first time, I've watched these in ten years or something. I it's pre Simpsons, isn't it? I mean, that's it was definitely less funny than I was expecting. Yeah, when I was watching it, it was just like, oh, this is just all plodding along. And there's less happening than I expected. When, when the teacher asked him who Joan of Arc was and he said Noah's wife, that, that genuinely made me laugh. That was my first <laughs> laugh of the film. <laughs> there's one moment in the two films where I properly laughed out loud and it really got me. Yeah. And it's a joke I don't think I've ever seen before because I'm guessing the credits have been cut off when it's been shown on TV. But it was the very end of uh, Bogus Journey when there's a montage of oh, the newspaper, newspaper oh, headlines yeah. of what sort of spelling out what happens in the future. It actually reminded me of the the ending of 22 Jump Street, which I still have up as one of the okay. funniest sequences ever committed to film. But um, <laughs> it was specifically a headline, I think, that said, death wins the Indy 500. And then the quote underneath was, I didn't realise I could run that fast. <laughs> 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 and, and that... <laughs> That properly got me. But I think it's just because it really caught me off guard. (laughs) But funnily enough, for reasons I'll get into later, I was looking up uh, where those newspaper headlines stand, and apparently they were not written by the two writers, Chris Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon. They were put together by... The production designer. Yeah, presumably the graphics team, yeah. (laughs) So... Perhaps it speaks to their style of humour as well as writers that it, it was much more of an overt gag um, <laughs> than what we get in the rest of the film. So let's uh, focus in on the first film. So the the basic premise is this is a time travel film. And, and before we really dig into it on a specific level here, I just want to say, like as a big fan of the time travel genre... It's it's remarkably rare. Like you really do not get a lot of films in particular that are as simple as this character gets a time machine and goes on an adventure to another time with it. 
it's it's usually a lot more when it comes to time travel movies it's usually a lot more like they're going to go back to something in their past or the mm. future or we're going to get something confusing with time loops and folding yeah. in on itself and going back to scenes we've seen earlier in the film it's it's remarkably pure this film in that it is just we're going back to medieval times you know i was wondering sol if you would get annoyed at the at the time travel in this film or if you'd just be able to go with it well <laughs> It doesn't make any sense when you dig into it, but I'm happy to go with it. It's fine. Good. Right, good. We don't have to have that argument. Excellent. You're the one who gets hung up on time travel, from what I remember, Gareth. I'm usually the one who goes with it. That's what I remember from our Terminator episodes. Yeah, you could be right there. What, what I, do, I do like about the uh, time travel element is um, they do kind of establish, look, while you're off fanning about in history, time is still ticking away here. And I don't know why they can't just come back earlier. Yeah, there's no explanation for that. But but it's kind of like they're in a timeline and they're going along in a timeline. If they come away from that, they have to go back at the appropriate place. Yeah, I don't know if it quite makes Alan, sense. I think but... I think you've you, you've already crossed the border of overthinking this. <laughs> but what I like about that is it, it establishes the ticking clock. You can't just because yes. you've got time travel. Like, well, we could just take as long as we want. They then work around that anyway uh, by yeah. by waiting until after they finish the thing and then coming back to set mm-hmm. up for the tools they need. So yeah. I don't know, but it's it, it works. <laughs> It's one of those ones where you don't think too much about it. It's fine. But yeah, I mean, just like I was saying, on on that pure time travel adventure thing, like I I really can only think of that. There's uh, what's that film called, Alan? You'll know it. A uh, uh, Yankee in King Arthur's Court from the forties. Which is that Connecticut kind of Yankee. Yankee. That's yeah. it. Yeah, which is like a real classic. Oh, someone goes back to medieval times. There's obviously the Time Machine, um, which was made into a film in the sixties, but. You know, most most time travel films aren't this straightforward, and and you know I, I've seen plenty of kids' cartoons and things that dabble in it, but it's a surprisingly untapped. You know, even Back to the Future was never like, hey, let's hop in the DeLorean and go look at some dinosaurs. It was just mm. this weird kind of thing about a family story, you know. And it's kind of nice that this film exists as this pure distillation of that. Although even then. The film is more focused on their here and now and their their yeah. homework assignment than the time yeah. they spend exploring a medieval castle. They're, they're t- they're t- they go into history, grab a guy, and come back. <laughs> there isn't it. really a, there isn't really a villain in the first film. You know, it's just yeah. that they are destined to flunk most egregiously. That's the that's the jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to the second film, where you've got a big bad villain. You know, it's just it's just like oh, we want to pass. We don't want to get sent to military school. But that's it. It's, it's something so sort of beautifully simple about it all, isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I love it. It makes sense that it was conceived of with you know fourteen year old kids in mind because the basic mm. premise of we have to do our homework and we're not good <laughs> at doing it speaks so much to a kid. I think more than they're the stakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically, they they they're gonna fail their year at school that means military academy and that sort of thing for them they're set up as not having the best lives in the world like they're you know they're comfortable middle class existences but one of their dads is uh going out with someone they went to school with a few years above <laughs> them which they're obviously not too happy with and... that's another weird just a weird little gag that never really goes anywhere and <laughs> they just sort of occasionally roll it out but yeah the idea that bill's dad who's obviously like a 50 year old guy is has shacked up with 
a girl that was like a few years ahead of them in high school. We're never given any reason why. We're very much given the sense that she likes older men and she doesn't really care which one. <laughs> well, it's 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 almost just a setup for the gag in the second film, which is that she's then divorced. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Bill's dad is it, and married Ted's dad is that yeah, the right? No, it's the other way around. Ted's it? dad, Ted doesn't appear to have a mum. That's never really addressed. Yeah. It's just, yeah. She just doesn't exist. <laughs> but it, it is a weird little gag. Yeah, and it's just it's weird. Like like you say, it's the level of comedy that they're working with, and, and it, that it just feels like that is something that you're you're improving in character and you're, and you're like, like oh you know when your dad married a girl that we, we fancied in high school you know it's like i think it speaks to the time it was made though i i've seen a fair few comedies from the 80s that are this kind of I don't know, just not very funny, kind of, you know. The, the, it, it reminds me of, if you've ever seen um, those two characters that Rick Moranis and Dave What's-His-Name do, the two sort of Canadian yeah. guys. It's oh, that yeah. same kind of improv where it's kind of impossible to dislike them or what they're doing, but it isn't exactly funny. <laughs> and And it's like I say, it's pre-Simpsons. I think comedy has become a lot more quick fire and and gag centric than it used to be yeah absolutely yeah um and and you want more jokes packed into a uh, you know condensed down into a a i think if you compare a film like this with something like i don't know like a seth rogan film or a judd apatow film yeah they're the they're the modern equivalent yeah those comedy features and they're completely different they're completely different even those are, well, that's it. Those are a lot more, like, they're obviously doing a similar thing, but I think they're far more distilled because, the, as I've said many times on the show, yeah, and they are, you know, you get your actors to improvise for half a day's filming and then you whittle it down to three minutes. Whereas this feels like they did as many takes as you would on any film and improvised a bit. And that was it. <laughs> so it just doesn't quite have the same... And maybe that speaks to digital filming techniques, perhaps, you know? I, I suppose these were... Yeah, these were presumably shot on film, and therefore you couldn't do thousands of takes and have hours and hours and hours of footage to fuck about with at the end of it. Yeah. Should we get into the film? Because I have lots of hot takes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to talk about George Carlin, mm-hmm. yes. for whom I have a great deal of admiration as a comedian. Yeah but not a lot as an actor. <laughs> Another comedian who, to be honest, is is a similar thing. I've watched many, many George Carlin stand-up uh, recordings. Again, I never really laugh out loud in them. I just sort of think like, oh, that was nice hearing him talk in that vaguely amusing way for an hour. I like George Carlin, so let's get that on the record. He is a terrible actor in this. He, I mean, you know, he's so he's wooden. fine. Oh, come on. I know the budget's low and they probably couldn't afford anyone better, but still. Do, do you think Do you think they just they were fans and they, or they, they liked him, they knew him, they wanted to give him a job? What's the, what's the story there? Well, what I heard was they wanted Eddie Van Halen. Eddie oh, Van that Halen. makes sense. Because obviously they're talking about Eddie Van Halen. They go, oh, we need to get Eddie Van Halen in the band to play guitar. So they wanted it to be him, to be like a hero of theirs. But he, they couldn't get him, and they tried a few other people. But but then they kind of settled to get. Let's get a comedian. Let's. It's a comedy. Hey, let's get a comedian. But apparently, he he was brought on board after they'd started filming. Um, they and so it was a very late thing. And really, he's not in it much. He, he establishes yeah. a bit of exposition at the beginning, and then brings him the booth. 
and doesn't even really tell them much. It doesn't like say, oh, don't do this, be careful with this. It's yeah. just like, here's a time machine, do, see what happens. Yes, my memory, he was with them the whole time, but of course he's not. Yeah. You know, he just, he just basically is a very, as you say, a very light touch introduction. Yeah. And off till the end, yeah. Now, the, the phone booth thing, is that a reference to Doctor Who? Yeah. It's got to be, hasn't it? No, apparently not. Well, come they, on, how can it not be? But what, apparently, what what it was in the original idea, uh, it was a van, like they had a van because they have a band, and they travel through time in the van somehow. But then they were like, oh, "Back to the Future," they do it in a car. Let's do something different. Phone booth, yeah, and like Doctor Who does it in a phone booth. I don't know if they know that or not. In in this day and age, you could not make this film without someone pointing out the similarity somewhere along the way in production. But in 89, yeah. maybe you could in America, yeah. What about when they actually do travel through time? Are we? What do we think of the uh, rendering of the circuits of time? <laughs> <laughs> do you remember Max Headroom? It was making me think Max Headroom would be there somewhere. <laughs> Look, and bear in mind, this is five years. Right? This is five years after Terminator. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, before Terminator, Terminator One. Two. Come on, Terminator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Terminator. Hasn't I, got any I mean, this film, on. this first film, has got a pretty sketchy budget, hasn't it? It's a pretty <laughs> low budget film. They haven't got money to be throwing around on time travel. I think it's pretty fine for the eighties. You know, they, <laughs> they they get a lot of use out of their medieval setting and so on. That all looks the part. Um, it only really falls down on the CGI effects, and even that's quite a... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's they've obviously gone for more of a jokey rendition than a attempt at realism, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, because of the nature of the film. I do yeah. like... What I really like about those circuits of time sequences is the shot of, like, when they're showing, showing them in the booth like just looking out the door going whoa <laughs> and like it's obviously like just m- they're moving the camera around and they're just like because you just know i i did i read i read something so uh, the production of this film i don't know if you're aware of this but the company that made it the de Laurentiis company they went bankrupt after the film was completed but before it was released and that's why it got delayed so this film was made in 87 oh. it was scheduled to be released in 88 it got pushed back by a year so you know another they they shopped it around the the, the filmmaker shopped it around and said look the company's gone bust do you want to buy this to distribute it but you know someone bought it someone bought the distribution rights and, and put it out and ended up it being a bit of an unexpected success but i i did read something i think it was alex winter who was saying like when we were making this film no one thought it was going to be anything like it was a stupid thing a stupid plot there was no money sure. everything looked stupid we, we yeah we were in a we were st- sat in a phone booth where they were moving the camera around and we're going whoa <laughs> like <laughs> it was just a stupid nonsense film uh, and it ended up being much more successful than anyone anticipated. Not just at the time, but like we're, they're making a third film thirty years later. It's 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 mm. got it's it's managed to maintain some sort of legacy. Yeah, be that a cult. You hit just can't or predict what. these things, can you? You, you never. You, I don't think at the time you can predict it at all. I mean, it, it has to be said a big part of that. Like, I do not think they would be making this third film were it not for the fact that Keanu Reeves' star power has exploded in recent years. Mm. Um, and that's interesting because Keanu Reeves is the one whose career has exploded. Because I, I would say, not that, you know, I think they're both sure. doing a great job for what they are <laughs> in this film. But I think Alex Winter is marginally less yeah. bad in, in these films. I think he's a better actor. I, I, do you know what? I can't, so I cannot, 
I haven't got a counter argument to that, but the notion <laughs> of ranking these two as actors <laughs> based on this data <laughs> is it's just like they're not doing anything. You know, they're not it's it's one it, I mean it's it's one note, isn't it? All you've got to do yeah, is hit yeah, that note. Yeah. And there were probably there were probably hundred actors in Hollywood at that time who could have done that. I don't know about that, you know. I think I am a Keanu Reeves fan. I'm not you know, I'm not <laughs> a trying Reeves to disparage him, but but you, in this particular case, God, there's nothing there. I think they bring something to it. The two of them, there's a charm that you're not Definitely, necessarily going to yeah. get with it. I'm not saying it's it's acting ability particularly, but they're doing what is needed for the role. It's There's a likability to them. I think they have chemistry. Uh, when they cast it, you know, they paired people up to see who worked together and they, they got on well. So that was kind of why they got the part. I agree. I think Alex Winter comes along better than this uh, to say he never did much else. And it, I, the... I think he has more moments with, you know, something approaching a second note to what he's doing than Keanu Reeves does. Keanu Reeves, I mean, his career is one of the most bizarre things ever, really. And, and lucky. Is... His life is one of the most bizarre <laughs> things, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Alex Winter hasn't been able to sustain a career as an actor. He's become a, a relatively successful documentary director yeah. and director of kind of internet comedy. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, which, you know, is, is yeah, fine. Good. But I think the Keanu Reeves uh, phenomenon, I, I think this is an, ex- we might have talked about this before. I think this is a really good example of the power of being a nice bloke. Once you've got, you've got a certain level of ability mm. and acting talent, over that threshold, a lot of it's luck, but, you know, a lot of it is people want to work with him because he's a nice bloke. And I think that goes a long way. I think in a 30 year career, that makes a massive difference. Mm, the Jeremy Renner effect. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree, and and like, don't get me wrong. I've seen some uh, great Keanu Reeves films. I, I stopped myself saying great Keanu Reeves performances. Then I don't think he's a good actor at all. I think you can work what he does into a particular thing that will work. He's very good at what he does. What about Alan? Toy Story Four. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a good performance. I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That is the only one I can think of, but yeah. He did this sort of teen heartthrob thing, kind of, in the in the 80s. And he was in, what was it, Parenthood or something he was in, you know. And then Speed was the thing that suddenly made him a star. And then that faded over the few years because the, he was just doing shitty action films. And then he did another I, shitty I, action point film. Break, point Break is the... Is oh the yeah, that's, a, that's a good point, yeah. Nice point thing. Break and then Speed. And then he did another shitty action film called The Matrix, uh, which for some reason suddenly <laughs> became a huge hit. And because oh, they, in order to, oh, oh. in order to nail, no, I do like The Matrix, actually. My point is, on, on paper, it was just another action film. They were struggling for budget. They threw a load of percentage points at him to get him. And he's made a fucking bajillion dollars off of the back of that. And uh, so he just does whatever he wants now. And nobody would begrudge it of him. Lovely blow. That's it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, fuck it, whatever. Keanu Reeves. Whenever I hear people tell me how much I need to watch John Wick, it usually comes down to Keanu Reeves is brilliant. And then that usually comes down to, well, not as an actor, but he's just such a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, like, it's like the average people on the street want to go and watch his movies because he's known for being such a nice guy. It's it's a very odd situation. I have pretty strong feelings about John Wick. If you ever cover that, I want it in. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen I'm it. sure we will. <laughs> so, uh, based on the idea that Keanu Reeves' career is based on him being a nice guy, Alex Winter must be a right asshole. <laughs> <to> <laughs> <us>. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, he uh, yeah, I I I like him in this, and and like I say, I think they do bring something that you're not just going to get with any actors. I'd like to take this opportunity to mention the uh, live-action TV series that they did, <laughs> spin-off, called Bill and Ted's oh, Excellent that's... Adventures, with two other actors in it. Now, there is a Saturday morning kind of kids' TV cartoon thing. Yeah, they, they reprise the roles for that, yeah. Well, we, you just you just showed us this. We just saw a clip of this earlier before recording. I, I, I was gobsmacked. I didn't even know it existed. No, I didn't. I watched about 15 minutes of it, and it was awful. But that's it. Is it really any different to the film? <laughs> it's like, what? what is the difference? Like, so, that is a really good question, because it was. It was worse. But why? And I can't tell you why. Is it? Is it that charm? Is it there was just that charm missing? Yeah. I, I don't mean, know. I don't, I, it's, a, it's a fair question. But the t- these two actors, who have not gone on to do anything particularly um, spectacular, playing Bill and Ted, and they look a bit like Bill and Ted. Evan Richards and Christopher Kennedy. Yeah, they look the part a bit, uh, but they, and they're doing a kind of impersonation, but it's, yeah, it's just a weird, it feels like a weird TV knockoff, which is what it is. But Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures is brought to you by Levi Strauss & Company, makers of Levi's Big Jean, the Levi's Jean with a little more room for living large. Hurry, dude! Mr. Pearl said we had to be here by 9 o'clock sharp or we forfeit our spot. Thanks for the ride, Mrs. Logan. I totally wish you'd lock It's, it, it just, yeah, it doesn't have a charm to it. It's just nonsense. But maybe um, in addition to those guys, the, the rest of the cast in this film, there are some real highlights that I think bring a, a great likability to the film. So yeah. Yeah. you've got all these historical figures that they bring back. I, I have to say, Alan, yeah. I, I think... What you're saying about likability in the performances, I'm almost hesitant to put that down to the actors because I would say that extends to pretty much everyone in this film, which almost suggests it's something the director's doing. Because mm. I get that same degree of likability and warmth mm-hmm. from the guy playing Napoleon or yeah. Socrates. Uh, Billy the Kid. Yeah, Socrates. Yeah, yeah. Billy well, the that's Kid. it. Those are the ones that stand out. So Napoleon has his own little subplot where he's running around town. Although Napoleon himself is a bit of an asshole, it's quite fun and it's silly and the kids ditch him and all that. He goes to the water slides, you know, it's, mm. yeah, it's silly and fun. And then you've got the first two people they pick up, Billy the Kid and Socrates, and then they're kind of there all the time. And they have their own little kind of buddy adventures thing. Like, that's the <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> They turn up and save them where they've somehow infiltrated yeah. this world and become executioners. I would prefer a spin-off TV series of Billy the Kid and Socrates further adventures. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. you see them yeah. chatting up to young ladies in the in the mall, and they've obviously got a good chemistry going on between the two of them. Yeah. But that's it. And, yeah. and, and the guy playing Socrates, um, Tony Seedman, who's a British guy, he's like, he does a lot, well, did... I don't know if he's still alive, but he must be pretty old. Loads of sitcom acting. He was a comedy actor. He just brings such a joyous presence. Like, it is like mm. this kind of, you know, this ancient man, like, in a, in the modern world, just fascinated yeah. by everything around him. It's fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. even beyond these big time travel characters, you know, Joan of Arc's another one, but yeah. they're, they're kind of obvious places to shine. But, you know, I, I'd extend it past that. You know, the guy the guy plays Ted's dad, for example, I think he has that exact same degree of charm and likability, and, you know, particularly in the second film where yeah. he has to where portray... 
Yeah, yeah he has to portray himself good. possessed by Ted. That was a nice and he he bit, just yeah. absolutely nails it. You know, it, it's <laughs> okay, dudes. I mean, fellow policemen. My son Ted Theodore Logan and his friend Bill S. Preston Esquire have been murdered and replaced by evil robots from the future. You totally did it, dude. I totally possessed my dad. Not that it's a particularly hard thing to do, <laughs> but, you know, to see a man... It, no, no, he does it well. He has the body, he has the mannerisms. He, he does a great job. But that's it. To see to see a man who kind of looks that stuffy and old normally just go for it. it it's like watching Joe Pesci getting smashed in the face in Home Alone. You just don't... <laughs> you don't expect to see people like that doing something that well and, like, giving it their all. And, and yeah... I think the cast across these films, both of them actually, are quite remarkable. Um, just in terms of how warm and likable they all are. I'd like to talk about the when they go back to the medieval medieval times and find the babes, <laughs> princesses. Uh, the, the, uh, they see them up at a high window, so obviously they believe in love at first sight. Like Christopher <laughs> Nolan. One of the funniest, the things that made me laugh the whole the whole movie the most was where uh, Bill thinks Ted's been killed because he sees the soldier. <laughs> And then, and then Ted turns up and it's explained away with like oh, I bounced out of my armor when I fell, dude. <laughs> Just fell out of so my armor. Funny. Like, what? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And then they move on, and that's it. That's how that's resolved. You have this, you have this, this sort of ninety seconds of, of of tension. Oh my god, Ted's dead. No, oh, no, no. I fell out of my armor. <laughs> such a great, such a great reveal. Also, that is the moment where we get the one bit which really feels dated, uh, where oh, you know, realizing yeah. Ted is still alive, they embrace, uh, and then suddenly oh, yeah, realize yeah. what they're doing, step away and go. I fell out of my suit when I hit the floor. Back. Um, which is, you know, it's of its time. It's the eighties, but it is. And we're talking about this likability of the whole film and these characters. That's the bit that sort of jumps out as, as a sort of, oh, that's a yeah. bit negative, even if it was the yeah. 80s. Like, that's a bit like, mm. But, like, you know, teenage boys in the 80s, yeah, that was normal. It wouldn't, you know, it wasn't exactly... Uh... When Billy's, he thinks Ted is dead and he's um, he's over his body and, and he says, Bogus, heinous, non-triumphant. <laughs> and I have written down here, this is Shakespearean. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean by that is the language they're using is not, it's like it's not modern day language. It's not the language that you and I would use. It's, mm. it's English, but it's not quite normal English. And, you know, you've got, you've got this medieval scene and this tragedy unfolding. And it, it's, it's like a piss take of Shakespeare. That's the other thing that makes these characters stand out from just general kind of slacker stoner types is the language... Um, and this, yeah, this very unusual language they use, but this superlative language they use. Everything is most triumphant, like most excellent and, or most non-excellent or whatever. <laughs> but it obviously comes from the writers who, who, you know, it just sounds like they workshopped these characters on stage for, for a long time and just created their own little language. And, but it works. It brings such character to it and this individuality that we, you don't get anywhere else. On on that note, Alan, should we should we workshop a, a movie, Japanese Bond and Asthmatic Bond's Excellent Adventure? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs>
they, yeah, so that after they, after medieval England, we get this we get this montage of them just going and getting more historical characters, and it's just like really quick one scene. They go they grab Frude, uh, Sigmund Frude, and they, yeah. they get Beef Oven and uh, Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc, Jane Wheedlin, by the way. Jane Wheedlin was a big pop star in 1989. Yeah, I read about this. I don't know who she is, but I was looking her up, and she's she was in the Go Go's, right? Oh, I love Jane Wheedlin. I I had a real thing for Jane Wheedlin in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, so then they get uh, Genghis Khan. And Abraham Lincoln, and then they go back to San Dimas, and this is where this is where the plot unfolds. But there's some really there's some really lovely business here, where they get them all back and they take them to the mall to experience 20th century San Dimas. And I, I love the bit where the bit where they Missy's in the house, uh, and they say, Ah, oh, Missy, these are our school friends, uh, Bob Genghis Khan <laughs> and uh, Dennis Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> Just the weakest. Dennis uh... Socrates is is the, the name <laughs> three ages. Yeah, they come back to the modern day. You got these historical figures in modern day. They cause chaos. It just feels like that's the film, surely. That's your plot. And then they have to go and get them back. And, and like that feels like that should be the first 20 minutes. And then the whole film is like them trying to rescue someone from prison. So, someone's gone off and done this. they got to get them back. Y- you know what I mean? Like It feels like all the build-up to this, the previous what hour you're of saying, the film. Alan, what you're saying there makes perfect sense. You're right. That is how a movie should be structured. <laughs> but this is better. This is better. This is much quicker. I'm serious. This is just a, it's a quick montage. A little bit of antics, and then this little present breakout, and that's it. And that's all it needs to be. You're right; they could stretch that into a 90-minute film, but it wouldn't be very good. But it feels like if you were if you're going to sell a film, like that's what you. Oh yeah, we get historical figures, put them in the modern day, chaos ensues. So yeah, ultimately, bit of shenanigans in the mall, which is funny. That's the kind of the, probably the most comedy-focused bit. Like the stuff they're doing, it's designed to be funny, I guess. The most egregious, if I may use that word. Uh, <laughs> Most egregious play was when they're talk they're trying to Socrates and Billy the Kid are trying to chat with these two women and Fruit turns up holding a corn dog and then it like <laughs> and then it droops as these women like reject him. Oh dear, very poor. <laughs> and then take them to the history assignment thing. They're going to show them off. They do that, like the conclusion, basically. So they get each of these historical figures to talk about their experiences of San Dimas. Um, and there was a bit in that as well, where Frude is uh, analysing Ted. Um, and I was just like, why aren't they doing this with Bill, given that he wants to shag his mum? <laughs> like, surely that's the obvious ga- gag here. And then they, di- they did the gag anyway, so <laughs> it's <was> fine. <laughs> but yeah, so that's it, really. They... They put on this bodacious uh, display of history knowledge, and uh, the professor, who presumably thinks they've just hired a load of actors <laughs> and got them to say things, uh, thinks they've so, done their research. Can, can I just, before you move on, because that, that, that bit, that, that scene, that, their history project is great, <laughs> no doubt. When they thought, okay, the culmination of this film will be them presenting these historical characters, and they're all sort of showing off and doing their skills. So you've got Genghis Khan, and he's doing his, uh, you know, he's doing his uh, weapons display. Yeah. What are we going to do with Sigmund Freud? <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know, pick a different character. What if you, if you didn't have Sigmund Freud in this film, but picked a character that could do something, I don't know, a, a bit more dynamic, what would the film lose? What is Sigmund Freud bringing to this film that we, that we couldn't do without? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a ni- it is a nice mix. 
What I'm asking is how they how the hell did they come up with these these, these <laughs> final six or seven uh, characters? So in the original film, uh, actually filmed, um, the ending was they present these people in their classroom that we see at the beginning, and it's just like oh look here's some historical figures, and then the kind of triumphant finish was uh, the prom, and they take the princesses to the prom. And that was all filmed, and then they sort of they watched it back and realized this is a bit of a flat anticlimactic ending, and so they changed it to this big stage event, lots of lights and, and things, and, and you know presenting these historical figures. So that was a change, a, a reshoot basically, to make it a bit more um, climactic and a bit more exciting. Uh, and then, but then you do have it's just like all oh, the princesses turn up at the end for a happy ending. <laughs> there was no um, prom, which was like. Obviously, they asked him to the prom earlier. That was not the whole point. That's the film. Oh, there's one, one last thing about the, the final stage show. Rufus brings them futuristic guitars. <laughs> now, these, these futuristic guitars uh, are the most 1980s things I've ever seen. <laughs> just guitars you can't tune. That's it's all, like the music all. in Blade Runner. You know, it's supposed to be futuristic, but it's actually just the most 1980s. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's rate... Uh, excellent Adventure, the first Bill and Ted film. Uh, get a sense of how we feel about that. Gareth, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm going to give it an eight. I I think it's obviously not a classic, but it's it. it I think it held up. You know, it's it's it's, it's dated in one sense, but it it's still it still made me laugh. It was still a nice way to spend ninety minutes. As you said before, it's not a laugh out loud raucous comedy, but it's got a lot of charm, and I think that's worth eight. Okay. It's a classic in the sense that it has, you know, truly left its mark on pop culture. I mean, Avengers Endgame name drops it at one point. <laughs> oh well, the high the highest grossing film of all time that is, Alan. You know, you've made it when you're in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Don't exactly. You? <laughs> well, I I basically agree, but. Uh... I just can't get past like the 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 shortcomings. It, it it feels like it it could be better, you know. I just want another pass on the script somehow. Yeah, basically, I gave it a seven. I guess is uh, the conclusion to that. I'm I'm in a similar vein to that. Yeah, I I, I think the the pieces are here to make a a real great film. It doesn't quite come together, but it's still a really enjoyable, nice bit of fun that you know there's obviously an element of nostalgia at play mm. with this one but i you know i i think that's nostalgia that anyone can kind of tap into you know i uh, vaguely amusing so i give it a 7 out of 10 as well hey talking about enduring not only does it made it into the marvel cinematic universe but in the allen family <laughs> we still say ziggy piggy ziggy piggy every time someone eats a lot of pudding <laughs> <laughs> to this day <laughs> Well, I, I must say, I mean, I, I think this film taught me how to say shit in French. <laughs> <laughs> now that is legacy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, off the success of the first film, it, it I think it, it kind of overperformed for its budget. It was quite low budget, though. Yeah, something of a niche success, I guess, but better than expected. They funded the sequel. And the sequel obviously has a bigger budget. Yeah, you can see the budgets there, isn't it? If you're coming to write a second film, you go, right, some sort of time travel shenanigans, surely, right? Yeah, <laughs> That's... They, they haven't been to ancient Egypt yet. Let's yeah. let's have a meet Cleopatra and, and, and... Yeah, but they've done that. They want to go in a new direction. <laughs> but, but I think this Down. speaks to what we were saying, that obviously they've started with the characters first and figured out the rest second, and... 
you know, normally a film like this, you would go, it's a time travel movie, but obviously to the writers, it wasn't. And and I've heard uh, Ed Solomon say, you know, the the thing he's proudest about with this film is that it wasn't just a rehash, which Mm. it very easily could have been. So yeah, Bogus Journey, bizarrely, is um, about the two venturing into the afterlife, having been killed. (laughs) Yeah. And it does incorporate the time travel elements. Obviously, there's a the 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 person who's trying to get rid of them is from the future some sort of future terrorist who's trying to bring down the utopian society does imply it's not great so much of a utopia if there are people who don't like it yeah yeah but you know let's not get into politics uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this, this is this is this is terminator isn't it you know he's been sent sent from the future to uh yeah to destroy you yeah so they have to kill bill and ted this came out the same year as t2 for what it's worth. But yeah, that's exactly what they do. Future robots that look exactly like Bill and Ted are sent back in time to kill Bill and Ted and replace them and, and sort of destroy their legacy. And here we get to see a little bit of uh, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves' range as actors. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly do. They... <laughs> you said that with a sneer in your voice, Saul. How dare you? <laughs> I, I, look, they... I, I actually I think they do a, a really great job of being evil Bill and evil Ted. They're obviously having fun doing it. Yeah, yeah exactly. But they're they're relishing in doing the same <laughs> thing, but just kind of evil. And it's great. It, like it's a really good job. But here's the truth: we're totally gonna kill you now. <laughs> no way! Yes way, Ted. We're fully programmed to do it. Yeah, and we want to do it too. <laughs> you dick, Bill. I can't. I can't believe I'm going to agree with you, Saul, on this. But but you know what? You're absolutely right because. <laughs> It is very. It's they play it yeah. very close, don't they? It's very close. It's just the other side of that line, rather than being over the top. Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> oh Christ! Because because they're they're still playing it as absolute brainless buffoons as well. You know, I, I think the impulse would be to do it as yeah. people who know yeah. what they're doing. It's a, it's a really good performance. You convinced me. <laughs> I can't believe it. But that's it. Even the guy who has made these robots and sent them on a quest hates them because they're just Bill and Ted. They're just stupid. <laughs> but they're evil. So they're stupid. The guy who makes them, Joss Ackland. Yeah. I mean, what's he doing? I, 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 what, I mean, Joss Ackland has made some ripe old shit, let's be honest. But, you know, he's a proper actor. How did they How did they get him? Well, how did they get him to do this? They paid him, obviously. Uh, I. I uh, he, I read a couple of things about this. He has not been particularly uh, complimentary about the film. He said, "He said I've done a lot of um, bad things in my time because I'm a workaholic." That was one thing he said. Uh, he just takes. I'm a workaholic. He takes any Shut job that face. comes along. Uh, <laughs> and the other thing, student film, then Josh, you money grabbing <laughs> bastard. <laughs> the other thing he said was that he did the film as a result of a bet, uh, <laughs> which I didn't get any further That's explanation of. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, the, we do set up this main villain, uh, played by Joss Ackland, who is called Denomalos, which is Ed Solomon backwards, of course. Ed <laughs> Solomon being one of the writers. He kind of gets lost yeah. in it a bit, because it, it sets up the idea, but really we're looking at these robots that come back, and we're dealing with that in the moment. He sort of turns up at the end, and it's a bit silly, but... Big Joss is the big boss. Yeah, it's it never quite plays as, as the kind of big bad. I think, yeah, it's someone who obviously doesn't care 
and <laughs> isn't interested in doing a very mm-hmm. interesting performance. And he's quite a boring, like, just sort of round white man, you know? Early on in the film, I've written a note here, Joss Ackland seems to be a worse actor than George Carlin. <laughs> oh, now, I know he's not, but he didn't do a terrific job here, does he? Well, I, I'm I'm still not convinced George Carlin's terrible, to be honest. I, I, I've Well, Kevin Smith can Yeah, I've seen George Carlin do some all right uh, acting. He doesn't do anything in that first film. Jersey Girl. <laughs> oh yes, yes, that's yes, it. He's good. Right. He's legitimately yes. good in Jersey Girl. He's a dad. He's a nice granddaddy figure. You know what? Yeah. I take it back. You're absolutely right. <laughs> uh, you know, in Star Wars, when Darth Vader takes his helmet off and it's just like this sort of pasty white man <laughs> with a mm-hmm. collar on. That's what yeah. Denomalos yeah, 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 looks yeah. like. <laughs> Joss Ackland looks like in this film, and it's not scary. He's, he's not. And because when we see the future, obviously got a bit more budget now. We set up that George Carlin has been pulled back in time, and obviously he's going to do something. But then he just disappears <laughs> until the end. <laughs> so that's just yeah. forgotten about. Um, obviously, there's a reveal involved with that. Well, it's like the first day. It's like the first film. It's like they only had him for three days or something. Three hours, maybe. (laughs) They didn't. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Which is odd. I don't know. Like, he is. To say he's kind of. Like, yeah, looking back, having not watched these films for several years, thinking he's a major character. He's probably got screen time of about seven minutes over both films. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But a much much bigger character in this film, the the kind of one new character that really makes a a big splash is the Grim Reaper, Mm. uh, William Mm -hmm. Sadler. I'm a big fan of William Sadler, I think. But I think it might be based on this film. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I know him from Shaw. Isn't Shawshank Redemption? I know know William Sadler. I've seen him in other things. But I didn't know it was him until this watch. So I I sort of recognised him as the Grim Reaper. And then I I looked up who it is. Oh, bloody hell, William Sadler. Right, okay. And that, Mm. that, that suddenly, you know, made more sense. But did you notice he plays, he has a cameo in another role in this film? Yeah, yes. In the where they flash across to the the British kitchen later on, when when Denomalos takes over the cameras and he's playing to the whole world, <laughs> William Sadler's playing this besuited British gentleman, <laughs> which I thought was nice. They let him have a go without the makeup on. Yeah, and um, I did read as well the the wife and daughter in that scene uh, are his wife and daughter. William Sadler's. Huh. Oh, is that right? Wife and daughter. Yeah. I think William Sadler is really good here. I I don't really know his work particularly, but. There's there's so many little subtle comic touches to to his performance that I never really picked up on when I was younger and I used to watch this that I that I uh, really enjoyed on this rewatch just yeah just the delivery of it because he's playing quite a weird take on this character as well and I guess the joke is that you know wouldn't it be funny if death was a kind of petulant bad loser. <laughs> but then that is really funny. You played well, Death, but you have a lot to learn about sportsmanship. <laughs> and I think I think his presence as Death, I mean, I might as well mention it here, speaks to just how gloriously batshit a weird film this is. This is a <laughs> this is a relatively mainstream audience they're striving for with this film. It is ultimately like a teen comedy, and yet there is a protracted sequence that is just a straight-up parody of an Ingmar Bergman film. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody in the target audience will have seen. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I... I, Before I came to watch The Seventh Seal, when I was getting into film, I I was well, you know, very familiar with the... The idea of playing chess with death. 
but I think I kind of picked it up through osmosis from this film, maybe a bit from Last Action Hero. It must have been baffling back in 1991 when most people <laughs> watched this. But then I think it's funny without knowing it's a parody of a, a black and white yeah. film from the 50s, isn't it? You know, it works on both levels. They could have had a line in there which would have made it more obvious where he would have said, like, what, so what's your game, chess? And they go, like, uh, actually. And then it's like battleships or whatever. Yeah. So... so- so for anyone who hasn't seen this, just to kind of make things explicitly clear, uh, as we say, there's this bad guy from the future, he sends back some evil robot versions of Bill and Ted to kill Bill and Ted and take their place to kind of change history. Mm. And they do. They just kill him. <laughs> they succeed very early on, which is a really, you know, it's quite a, you know, even though I'd seen this film many times before, I kind of forgot what it was about. And it, it did kind of take me aback when they died. I was like, oh yeah, do they... It was like Sean Bean in Game of Thrones. You're, you're sitting thinking, this isn't going to happen, is it? Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't. <clears throat> anyway, so yeah, we get robot versions of them. I have to say, the effects work on realising these robot versions yeah. of them is done so well. I mean, it, you know, mm. you basically... Because they're actually genuinely robots, aren't they? They weren't actors. It was, they built robots, <laughs> versions of them. Probably dubbed in the voice. They couldn't do the voice as well, but, uh, you know, apart from that. Well, Keanu Reeves they could, definitely. <laughs> Ke- there is no real Keanu Reeves, that's what. Yeah, it's an upgrade from wood, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, in all seriousness... You see them peeling you know, it's, off it's, their skin and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's obvious what they're doing. They're, you know, Alex Winter's grabbing his cheek as hard as he can, and then they're cutting <laughs> to a shot of a, a sort of animatronic endoskeleton and then they're cutting back but it's just it's done really well i thought it worked yeah. i agree with you really Saul. really nice well effect. Yeah. yeah even compared to like the fake arnie head in total recall it's <laughs> it's better than that <laughs> yeah and and anyway so then they they have a a series of bets with death to not be um oh hang on no do they go to hell do they go to hell before that they do don't they because they, they do go to hell. Yeah, they go to hell and then they challenge death. No, because they Melvin death to get away from him. And then you they run off. Because then they have a soul section where they're kind of haunting their family and trying to get oh, yes. help. They go and to the seance. So the seance, right. So in the seance, just coincidentally, is organizing a seance. <laughs> they that's, how they get, that's how they get put sent down to hell. A but midday seance. She's got this group of people around and they're all naming individuals that they want to make contact with. And it's not their long lost auntie <laughs> or their grandparents. They've got this list of historical celebrities. So, right, I've written this down. So here's the list. Gandhi, Anne Boleyn, Aristotle, President Chester A. Arthur, Clark Gable, Charlemagne, Ty Cobb. That is the sequel. <laughs> That's the film this could have been. Genuinely, I imagine that was what that was. I imagine they went, right, let's go with the list of people we would have met had this just been another time travel movie. Well, I read that two of the guys in that say unto the writers... Yeah, so, yeah. so maybe that's their little wink at the, the audience. Yeah, they're also the waiters in the Ziggy Piggy scene. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, in the first <laughs> right, film, okay. just trivia. Like we said in the first film, there's a lot going on in this film. There is this possession bit, the haunting bit. There's the challenge with death. There's the hell scene. Then there's the whole ending thing at the Battle of Bands. There's all sorts of stuff going on. When they get exercised from the seance, I mean, this is a, that's such a funny scene when they're falling to hell. <laughs> they, just, they just keep falling and they're screaming and then they look at each other and say, what now? <laughs> and then they carry on screaming. 
That is a really funny moment. That is a gag I have seen probably 10, 15 times in different things. And I've got to give him credit because it is down to Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. They sell it. It, Their performance (laughs) here of just like, what do we do now? I don't know. Just kind of looking around. And then, ah! And they just carry on (laughs) screaming. That is such a funny scene. Yeah. And then the, the other thing I really like about this film is... The the visual side of it, I guess. The way oh, they God, choose yeah. to realise some of the things. In the hell bit, we really get a lot of that. Like, what's your vision of hell? You know, and they and they do go for something quite quite metal, quite kind of metal album cover. They even say though, like, you know, this isn't like whatever album cover it is that they mention. Yeah. Because it's actually quite a an interesting artistic interpretation of hell, you know? They're all on floating rocks on chains and yeah. I don't I think that's something they've come up with. I don't think that's a direct reference yeah. to anything in particular. Don't I, don't think that's in, I don't think that's in scripture. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the obvious thing would have been they land in a pit of fire and brimstone and there's a little red guy dancing around with a pitchfork and instead they go for something <laughs> quite interesting. And I think that's true of the whole film, you know? It, it's it's really inventive, even their ideas of hell, like one of them is, yeah, they're sort of trapped in a military academy. Yeah, and here we get yet another example of uh, Alex Winter stretching his acting ability. Oh, as his granny, I think it's fantastic job he does as a little... Granny S. Preston, Esquire. No way! How about a kiss? Oh, your dear old granny. Bill. Oh, is that Alex Winter? I didn't know that was Alex Winter. As, as Granny yeah, Preston, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. It's a lovely bit of prosthetics as well, actually. It's really well done, yeah. It helps that it's filmed in kind of odd lighting, but I think it's a fantastic performance. There was kind of... Well, I didn't know it was him. He's horrible old lady. <laughs> uh, but yeah, their idea of hell is like, yeah, having to kiss your old granny at a birthday party, or getting told off for stealing your brother's chocolate. <laughs> like, that's hell. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, again visually. There's some really interesting stuff there. Like the the military academy thing is like very expressionism uh, mm-hmm. style, and and they've got I love the they've got the light the floodlights from above are painted on the floor. There's these white circles. It's just a weird mm-hmm. little detail that I really like. The way this is shot is quite nice. I don't know how much of that's down to cinematography and production design, but I looked up the director to see what else he's done. This is his first feature film he did, Peter Hewitt. But he went on to do um, things like The Borrowers, uh, Garfield. <laughs> but huh. then the one that really jumped out at me, Sol, I think you'll appreciate yeah, this, on. he directed Home Alone, The Holiday Heist. <laughs> I the, saw uh, that. Yeah, I did Far that, better yeah. than it should have been. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Of all the things I took away from this film, it was like, oh, I'm interested in what this director's done. Never quite lived up to it by the looks of things. <laughs> So then the narrative of the film, they, they escape from hell by challenging death. They beat death first at Battleship and then at Twister. And what Pudo, else? They, they, yeah. Best two out of three. <laughs> <laughs> but then they get to go to heaven, don't they? To, um, yeah. to try and find, to find someone to help them defeat the evil robots. So I like, the, I like the way that the first thing they do when they get to heaven is mug three <laughs> heavenly uh, three farmers. 
<laughs> which which seems out of character, but they sort of get away with that. That's, that's yeah, they, they need to do. But it is it is like it is cartoon esque. But uh, a lot of this stuff in these films are. Yes. They walk yeah. off camera. You hear some sort of punch sound effects, and then they walk back yeah. on four seconds later in full costume. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Including yeah. including death, who is wearing a costume <laughs> over the top of his <laughs> robe and scythe. <laughs> Which is a, a, just a wonderful cartoon esque, you know, detail. It, Plus, there's no, there's no reason for them to do it. They're not, they don't like yeah. go up to her and say, "Oh, you can't come in." They just, yeah. they just go, "Well, we better dress appropriately, I suppose." And they get to talk to God. They and just again, they, they just go to God and go, "All right, mate, uh, can you but help the us?" First out? thing Ted does, and again, I've talked about this already. He's, he says. First, let me compliment you on the creation of a most excellent planet. <laughs> he's just he's just such a nice bloke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we never hear or see God, do we? He just sort of uh, sends them a map and they go and find uh, uh so they they go they ask to, you know, help uh, the best scientists in the universe to help them build robots. It is of course uh oh, it's not a human after all. It's not Einstein who's stood there who thought it was going to be. It's these two little alien things, but no other aliens in <laughs> heaven whatsoever. <laughs> like they, they don't populate the world with sort of other creatures. It's just humans and station. <laughs> I mean, this is something that always jumped out to me as a kid and took me out of it. But I think it's partly because you know the gag is the reveal, and that wouldn't work if you were seeing a load of aliens well, yeah, exactly. on the way up to it. Yeah, yeah but yeah. they they could have justified it with a sort of you know this is the the earth entrance to heaven and yeah so this is human uh, uh, heaven or whatever. well i think that station is a rubbish character <laughs> i think he's got especially if you compare him to to the character of death he's got no personality there's no you know obviously he's not speaking english as a language but i just i, I don't think he I, I, you know it could easily have been just a different human character and we would have got more out of it I, I think it's a think, nothing character. I like it because yeah, the, the, it's just the bizarreness of this. Yeah, it's like there's been no context for this. There's no setup for it. <laughs> it's just these two weird little things, and then at some point they jump into each other and become one big thing. It does, it doesn't make any sense, <laughs> and they only say one word. Station is utterly alien, though. You know, I I, I like that. It's just so. This thing is so. I like the idea that the greatest mind in the world isn't human. And I like the idea that Station is just utterly doing his own thing, or its own thing, because it's just such a weird alien life form. And it's these two things that seem to operate as one. They they operate under the name Station. <laughs> do, you, do you know where that name came from? Yeah, go on. Apparently it was just a script error at one point when they were writing the film. They they accidentally like put a break in a, in a, uh, a location name. I think it was Police Station. So it just had the word station written there, uh, and they found it really funny. <laughs> and so they just made that the name of the character. Mm. You see, that's a that's a writer's room joke. That's yeah, really yeah. <laughs> but that's it. But in this, in the context of this film, where nothing really makes any sense and nothing is yeah. kind of justified, it's just another weird thing that's going on. I think I think you can certainly go along with it, but I don't know. I I, I just doesn't station the character does not float my boat and it doesn't do anything for me i think station again talking about the visual effects here is again really well realized for 1991 it is essentially just two you know latex 
head-to-toe costumes that they've put some little people in, I'm guessing. But I kept looking at them, like, expecting to think, oh, that looks a bit shit. And I kept thinking, like, actually, no, that's kind of... They've kind of got away with it there, you know? Maybe when (laughs) Station goes big, it's not quite as impressive. But I like Station. Do you know who's doing the voices of Station, Tom? Uh, I don't know. Is it Ed Solomon? (laughs) (laughs) It's Frank Welker. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Who's that? I don't know that. Frank Welker is the guy who does voices of everything. <laughs> like he's the voice of... of every animal in Hollywood from about 1960 to modern day. He's also probably best known outside of that for voicing uh, Fred in Scooby Doo. Every iteration of Scooby Doo, with the exception of the the new film where it's Zac Efron or someone like that. <laughs> he's actually the, he's also the voice of Scooby Doo now since like 1980 something he i, I recognize the voice of the devil and uh, apparently that's frank welker but i i sort of recognize the voice but i couldn't figure out where from but it's definitely a voice i've heard frank welker doing before oh you 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 will have heard yeah he's got a very i mean he basically sounds like fred from scooby doo it's a very distinctive <laughs> voice and he's a real powerhouse voice actor Apparently he was friends with Elvis, and Elvis used to just phone him up and tell him to do dog noises down the phone when he got bored. <laughs> Dance like a monkey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk. Let's go back to the plot and what Station does. So his his role within the film is to create the good robot Bill and Ted's to fight the evil robot Bill and Ted's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now what a good job he does. Well, you made a joke, Alan, about how it's actually just a real robot. Yeah. playing the evil versions. It basically is just an actual robot playing the good versions of Bill and yeah. Ted's robot <laughs> forms. Yeah, like they they are just these hideously clunky but obviously real like animatronic puppets. I think I think I think he does do a good job. I mean, it doesn't when you compare it to the future robots it looks a bit clunky, but He's, he's knocked them up with stuff from B&Q. He's done a terrific yeah. job at that old station there. In in like oh, 20 yeah. minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In the back yeah. of a van. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really great aesthetic to them as well. Yeah, they yeah. look like junk robots, but in a really nice way. Yeah, the visual effects on them, again, are, are just wonderful. Yeah. They're, they're really good little puppets. I love them. They're great. And I did the wigs. <laughs> 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 Death is the best character in this. I, I agree. I yeah, agree. yeah, yeah. The death is a real like standout scene stealing. You know. Yeah. Yeah. He he steals the film, frankly. Well, he he's going to turn up in the third film, isn't he? Yeah, as well. Yeah, so we'll, we'll yeah. see. Come back to that. So then we set up this big conclusion where they're going to compete at the Battle of the Bands, uh, even though they're crap. Tina Turner has let them in. That's not Tina Turner. That's Pam Greer. That's Pam Greer. It's Pam Greer doing years Tina Turner. Jackie Brown, but bloody hell! It does look like Tina Turner, though. I'm not crazy, am I? It does look like Tina. <laughs> um, yeah, so she lets them in anyway, uh, even though they're crap. So they, yeah, they're all building up to do this big concert, which of course then coincides with uh, them having to. They have to stop the bad robots doing it and killing their girlfriends and all that sort of nonsense. Oh, we have we have sort of skipped over the part where they are proposed to their girlfriends, sort of simultaneously. Well, Will the you babes marry are us? Most chaste. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And then they, we find out they haven't slept with them. <laughs> yeah, our most girlfriends chaste. are most chaste. <laughs> <laughs> They've got 15th century uh, ideals. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we're building up to the big climax here, where they you know fight, and then it's actually quite anticlimactic because 
the bad ro- the good robots just turn up punch the heads off the bad robots <laughs> in one one fell swoop incidentally that, we, we talked about how station have done a great job on designing these robots let's also point out what a great job he did on the joystick because <laughs> the joystick has that that free movement so you can get them to go forwards backwards side to side and a big punch the head off button <laughs> Also, the the robots clearly move and and do things when the 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 uh, joystick is not being handled. So they always have some autonomy as well. <laughs> I I think I'm assuming the head punching is a reference to those Rock'em Sock'em robot toys that you get. <laughs> that I think were a big deal in America in like the 80s. But we do they do go to the trouble of having a scene earlier on to establish that their heads pull off quite easily when they're playing basketball with their heads. Yeah. <laughs> Just as which works in itself, just as a sort of silly little scene, but then it's like, okay, the heads come off. I like the way the evil robots just resign themselves to their fate. They don't even put up a fight. They just kind of go like, oh wow, those robots are designed well enough that we can't beat them. (laughs) It is a bit of a damp squib of a climax, but well, I think it's because they're then waiting for the big bad to turn. Yeah, then the big bad comes and they have a bit of time travel shenanigans with him where. I mean, that's not the climax, Sol. The climax, the climax of the film is God gave rock and roll to you. <laughs> that, that's not the climax, that's the prestige. <laughs> they go away for um, 16 months of intensive guitar training and they come back as good as Kiss. Yeah. <laughs> and looking like ZZ Top. <laughs> well, a- Alex Winter looks like ZZ Top. Keanu Reeves looks like contemporary Keanu Reeves, pretty much. Yeah, he's grown a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I really love this ending. Just I I love conceptually. We know their music has to do something big to bring the world together, and then the idea that this big bad goes back in time, does a huge broadcast across the entire world on all frequencies, mm-hmm. so, like announcing his evil plan. But then that leads to them doing a performance of their song to the entire world, and we see everyone across the world like getting really into it and oh we're not dead oh what a great song it's and and then we get this montage of you know all the newspaper headlines it's it's such a nice it's neat it's a neat bit of story yeah i I really like it i really do i I think (laughs) and it's such a great just conclusive ending to what this is uh, which yeah, what they set up in I'll the first film. Touch on when we talk about the upcoming film in a minute, mm. but yeah, it's really nice and and those like like I said before, the headlines on those newspapers have got some really good gags in them. Yeah, yeah, really kind of pays off. I think everything we've been watching <laughs> in both films in a lot of ways. Oh, one other thing that made me laugh at the end, uh, Rufus comes back and he's, he's, he's talking to Bill and Ted. And at the very beginning, when we first see Joss Ackland, Rufus says, my old teacher. <laughs> and it sort of implies like he's a sort of Jedi master type relationship. <laughs> and then at the end, he says, oh yeah, he used to be my gym teacher. <laughs> <laughs> also, I liked it when um, Ted describes his girlfriend as being from medieval England, uh, Iowa. Oh yeah, that, that's a great, <laughs> that is a great joke. <laughs> Yeah, let's rate it then. Let's uh, put it to bed. I mean, look, this this film is generally regarded as a a bad sequel, a messy, if ambitious, follow-up. But it has taken on something of a cult following, and it certainly seems to be the one they always show on TV. And 
you know, I, I think there is a growing sentiment that perhaps it is better than the first, and, and that's definitely where I land. Having rewatched these two now, I, I used to think of them as being pretty much one and the same, but I think the second one is actually a, a much better film, to be honest. It's more ambitious, um, it, it, it has a lot more going for it in terms of scope and direction and, and just how inventive it all is, and... I think its offbeat, bizarre nature just plays into, you know, what it's doing. It's just got a nice sense of humour. So yeah, I, I give it, um, I'm only giving it another 7 out of 10. It's not that much of a step up from the first. But let's say the first one's quite a weak 7, whereas this is quite a strong 7. Well, I, I think there's, um, rather like the first film, there's an awful lot happening. They cram so much into 90 Minutes. And and as a consequence, you, you, it is a bit of a mess, but I don't mind. I think it works. I think it's okay. It's not like they're trying to tell a great narrative story. It's just, you know, it's a fun film. The, my biggest problem with this, and it may be as a result of having watched the two films pretty much back to back, Bill and Ted are basically annoying. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't want to, like if you were locked in a room with them for any period of time, they would really get on your nerves. And by the end of the second film, they were starting to wind me up a little bit. <laughs> But it's three hours is a bit much. But I, you know, I think, like you said before, they've still they've got a lot of charm. And for me, the the best bit of this film, the best bit of both films, really, is the character of Death. I think that's a, such mm. a well written and well portrayed character. Mm. I, I, I'm going to give it. I'm going to give this a seven out of ten. I do think it's a slight improvement on the first one, but uh, you know, I, I I really put them about on par. Didn't you give the first one eight? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, did I? Well, you know, we have have discussed before that I I give these films marks and then completely forget. In that case, I will give this one an eight as well because I want to give it the same mark as the first one. And I've already forgotten. (laughs) Yeah, I I kind of largely agree with you, Sol, except I think I I quite like how sort of pure and simple the first one is. Yeah. I, I really like the the ambition of this film and how it, yeah. I just I wish that the whole was the sum of its parts and I don't think it is so whereas I gave the first one a kind of mediocre 7 I'm going to give this one a generous 7 uh, I want to give it a 7 but I think that's probably a little bit mm. generous but that's fine it, it does survive on its uh, t- charm and likability but yeah. it, 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 it's I, I do appreciate that they went somewhere different with it they tried some cool new things and I think a lot of it works it's definitely a messy film in a lot of ways but then to be honest you know even though the first one is a lot purer and simpler i think the first one's also a bit messy (laughs) so it doesn't so it doesn't really bother me that this is trying to do more and is messy with it because it yeah i just think it's about (laughs) neither film are particularly well structured streamlined things so yeah Yeah. but yeah there we go yes um Remarkably positive outlook <laughs> towards these films, much like Bill and Ted. Well, congratulations, podcast dudes, on the most <laughs> excellent record. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we're not done yet. There, There is a third film. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there was talk immediately of a third film. But then they've been dealing with this kind of, let's go back to the well for at least 10 years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is one of those long gestating, you know, they're asked about it every few years kind of films. And I, I suppose it reminds me a bit of Ghostbusters 3, which was this, you know, every time Dan Aykroyd did an interview, he'd say, yeah, we, 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 it's written, we're going to make it next year. 
and there'd be a, 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 a slew of headlines. And then Bill Murray would say, piss off, I don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this is very similar, because pretty much every time they were asked about it, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, they said, yeah, we'd love to do a third one. Or, yeah, they're writing it. We're, we're just trying to figure it out. So it's... it's. What's Keanu Reeves' position? Has he, has he always been on board? or you know? Is he... I think so, yeah. I think he he's always been... He seems been... like the sort of guy who'd be up for it. Yeah, I think he's always been very positive about his time on Bill and Ted and, you know, acknowledging that it did a lot for his career. And I think he's always been willing to return from what it's I the, can gather. It's the most close to himself he's played. <laughs> like, it's, <Yeah. laughs> it's the most natural performance he's done. <laughs> but I think because, you know, because someone like him said, yeah, we're, we're trying to get it together, hopefully going to film it in two years' time or something, that means that there's been headlines about this project and how they're making it for years and years and years. And, you know, one thing has got in the way here and delayed it there. And it's ultimately taken about 10 years to get it off the ground, which isn't unusual. Yeah, you got to work around Keanu Reeves' schedule and all that. Yeah. (laughs) And just pull the money together. Because it's not a... A third Bill and Ted is by no means a a slam dunk in terms of... um, investment from a film studio point of view. Uh, I was reading that apparently most studios they met with wanted to reboot the franchise rather than create a, a, a straight-down-the-line sequel. Yeah, And you can sort of see that because I do wonder to what extent this film will have any mainstream appeal. But that's it. I think it's got enough nostalgia appeal. Uh, you yeah. Just, yeah, you just need to put the budget accordingly. Yeah, well, I mean, every everyone knows of Bill and Ted. Like, they've all heard of it. And I think most people, certainly in this country, have seen bits and pieces of these films on TV because they mm. they're all, well, they certainly used to be on all the time. The audience is there. Do we know, do we know anything about the film? What's the what's the plot? Well, I've seen a couple of trailers. The basic idea of the plot, from what I can gather, is this: they were meant to write this big song that brought the universe together. They've hit like age, whatever they are, 50, 40 something. I think even the, the char- in character, they have to be in their 50s, yeah. But they're, they're firmly in their, you know, in middle age, and uh, they haven't written the song and brought the world together yet. And someone from the future turns up, like, guys, you've really got to write the song because history is not going the way it's planned. Now, the problem with that is it, it completely seems to fly in the face of what we see happen at the very end of the previous film, mm. which is yeah. they bring the world together with their music the trailer doesn't really get into that i i think they have just kind of retconned the end of the previous film which i'm not a huge fan of mm-hmm. as i said before i've seen ed solomon say something to the effect that those newspaper headlines aren't canon because they weren't written by him and chris matheson they were put together by someone else but even then that whole ending seems to be implying that that broadcast across the world was when the world came together with their music and obviously that's not the case and in the trailer here be hard to, Ted's... it wouldn't be hard to write in that you know that happened and then like oh, 30 years have gone past things are starting to slip we need another big tranquil song to bring everyone together yeah well it wouldn't be difficult to fold that in that was a big moment but nothing's come of it or whatever the problem is as well they're they're set up as these really accomplished musicians at the end of the second film this seems to be going on the idea that they're still not accomplished musicians i I don't know um so in the trailer ted's dad says something to the effect of bill ted enough of the delusions you didn't time travel and you didn't go to heaven and hell here's a real idea for you be role models to your daughters 
get real jobs. So they seem to be playing up the idea that people don't believe they had these adventures, even though there's some pretty tangible evidence in front of big crowds of people. So I'm not entirely sure about the logistics of the film and making it work. And obviously I'll have to wait and see it before I pass judgment on that. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's something that happens in one of the trailers I saw that I assume is gives away the ending, um, or at least something that must twist later on, in that one of the people from the future says something along the lines of... A song created by Preston Logan, performed tonight, will save reality as we know it. And the fact that they use Preston and Logan specifically is really sort of odd. But then, of course, the whole point of this film is that they're, they're daughters. Well, here's another retcon. Although they have two sons at the end of Bogus Journey. Bill Jr. and Little Bill and Little Ted. They now have two daughters. And it doesn't appear to be that they had like second kids it seems to be that those two kids at the end of the first film are actually just they were just wrong when they called them sons oh no they're called billy and theodora yeah and uh (laughs) no i'm serious (laughs) my understanding is those two kids we see at the end of bogus journey are in fact both girls so yeah that's a little bit of continuity for you there so yeah i assume the ending is going to be it's their daughters who are kind of going to change the world now uh, with their music somehow. But they obviously go on some sort of adventure because at some point they meet a sort of alternate version of themselves. My understanding is that this film's concept is a kind of It's a Wonderful Life where they see, or A Christmas Carol, right, where they see yeah. alternate realities versions of themselves where things went differently. Because there's one where they're and in the one, prison. the one in the trailer. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Very visually uh, startling one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it looks silly. But, but weirdly enough, they look less weird there than they do just as <laughs> Bill and Ted because, you know, Keanu Reeves looks like he's got some sort of rubber face on. Um, well, Keanu Reeves is remarkable for having not aged, but a big part of that is, you know, something I've I've also discovered is that he has a little beard on him. <laughs> and that that really does wonders to like give your face some definition. So when when we see him now, an old man who's shaven, it's it's very startling. And I think it's a shame they didn't let him keep the facial hair he had at the end of the second film that would kind of bring his <laughs> face together a bit, but I mean, I'd be well up for that with Alex Winter having a ZZ Top beard the whole time, but I guess they're trying to get away from that ending on as much as they can. I, the, my, I'm worried about this film, worried. just because what I was saying about the tone of the previous two films is so far removed from modern films that I'm just really worried this if this is the same tone, which it does appear to be, more or less, in the trailer, I don't know how well it's going to work. It's just going to feel a bit out of time. But is it playing on that, the nostalgia element anyway? Is it just yeah. going to work on that level and that's fine? I, I think, to be fair, I, I can believe it's going to be every bit as good as the other two because it's the same creative team and it doesn't strike me like these are going to be easy films to cut a trailer for. The trailer certainly doesn't sell me on it. <laughs> so what would you have done, Sol? What's your third film in the bill and ted canon i mean conceptually i like what they've got here it's just it 30 years too late yeah exactly and i I hope they find a way to justify the uh inconsistency with the second film but you know you you don't want to do out and out time travel again you don't want to do out and out 
afterlife again. You've got to come up with something else. And it seems like they've done that with um, this, you know, alternate versions of what could have been concept that apparently they're playing on. So I think that's a really good concept, actually. And What about sort of a flipping the the fish out of water thing like the crocodile dundee 2 where you take him somewhere else so you it could be set in the future that is you know influenced by bill and ted's thoughts and um somehow we get some straights from the past or something that have to come and and change something i don't know like the you know reverse the whole thing yeah. around it's like yeah i agree with Saul. i think the way they just completely reinvented it for the second film worked because Really, for me, I think the first film is one of those times where everything just sort of comes together and it is the greater than some of its parts, you know, like the chemistry you get between the actors, which you can't, you can cast for that Mm. to some extent, but, you know, to make Mm. them that likable, the writing works, even though the script is a bit weird and messy. And And the fact that they managed to get away with it a second time as well, I think says a lot. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, we're 30 years later, it's... Yeah, I am, I am worried and... (laughs) A lot of that as well seems to be, although they've made a big a big point of not resting on nostalgia and rehashing stuff, we know that death is going to come back and be a part of the film. Uh, William Sadler's reprising the role. Yeah. Um, apparently, uh, Billy the Kid is also coming back. I think Socrates might even be coming back. So oh, to me, that does scream of, oh, we're going to rehash nostalgia Great from the other that films. Sound- and I don't that's know. not what I want. I, I want brand new characters. With that sort of thing, though, I think you're going to, at best, it's going to be a little throwaway gag. Oh, hey, so great, you know, what are you up to? Uh, because, I mean, the guy's dead, so it's obviously not going to be the same actor. But, you know. Well, that's that's fine, except I think death does seem to be quite a big part of this film. Oh, that's no, that, I think that'll work, though. I think you can make that work. Yeah, I hope so. If he's the one guiding them through... Yeah, lives or and there are there are new characters, you know, in it. We we've got um, uh, Gillian Bell is in there playing someone. We've got uh, Kristen Schaal. She's like the new George Carlin. And we have the two daughters played by uh, Bridget Bridget Lundy Payne playing mm. Billy Logan, and yeah. uh, someone I'm a huge fan of, Samara Weaving. Yeah. Playing Thea Preston, who I'm I'm glad to see graduating somewhat from the schlocky horror comedy kind of world she's been playing in for a while now. You know, I, think... I really fancy Samara Weaving. <laughs> I, 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 it has to be said. I'm really glad she's not playing Ted's daughter because there'd be all sort <laughs> of like weird incestuous undertones in the back of my head because of the family resemblance, you know. <laughs> um, like going back if I were to make a sequel at the time I would definitely have gone the Socrates Billy the Kid Adventures Through Time <laughs> or something like that or they're just well, like as a spin-off, comedy yeah. duo just going off doing stuff yeah you're right I think that would have been a great film <laughs> I, I think to be honest it's not something that would excite me in the same way but my if I was looking at this as a like an exec with a load of money trying to make something that's gonna justify the spend and everything i think the sensible thing here would be a kind of netflix tv series you know there's a lot of those that appeal to fans of a specific movie from the 80s you know ash versus evil dead is a a good one to kind of pull to mind that's obviously not a netflix show but it's providing a, a sequel of sorts to a a long dormant franchise with an aging star, but it absolutely works for people who haven't 
spent you know years watching and rewatching those old films and i i think you could pick up with a an aging bill and an aging ted and do a run of like 10 episodes of them having different adventures through time tie it all together with this overarching plot of they have to write a song and and you know maybe they're looking for inspiration through time or something looking for the new sound yeah that that strikes me like the certainly the safest way to do it but yeah well we shall see and we'll do a little diminisode about it when we when we watch yeah this. yeah and it does seem pretty firmly set for a release date now on the 1st of September, having been delayed a few times. That's apparently going to be uh, in cinemas and video on demand the same day, mm. which I think is them hedging their bets as to whether or not yeah. cinemas are going to be open and just saying, right, it's this day, that's it. So yeah. sounds like it will be coming out <laughs> this year. Well, that's it. Bill and Ted. Uh, thanks, Gareth, for joining us once again. Yes, thank you. you. Most excellent. (laughs) Yes, for this most excellent podcast. Uh, Who knows when this episode will actually be out. (laughs) It's before the 1st of September, hopefully. Yeah, we can't even talk about what's next week. Because we're not entirely sure what will have already been and the schedule's changing all the Is there anything the Patreons are voting on at the moment or anything like that? We've got an upcoming Pixar tie-in, which we've decided we're going to throw out to Patreon to select which Pixar film we're going to cover. Fair man, we've already done Toy Stories. And Finding Nemo. Yeah, yeah. And The Incredibles. Oh, yeah. Bloody hell. (laughs) All the others are fair game. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then. So we shall see you in the future. And thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.